0: And welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Erin McCreary, and I'm a clinical assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine and the Director of Infectious Diseases Improvement and Clinical Research Innovation at UPMC. This is a very special episode of Breakpoints, where we are sharing content that was captured live at the Making a Difference in Infectious Diseases, or MAD-ID, annual meeting that took place in Orlando, Florida in May 2022. My co-presenter, Dr. Emily Heil, and I are going to walk through about a year of non-COVID-related literature during this episode, so really diving into key publications in the infectious diseases space that you may or may not have had the chance to read because of the focus on COVID-19. Dr. Heil is an associate professor at the University of Maryland School of Pharmacy, and she serves as a coordinator of the Antimicrobial Stewardship Program at the University of Maryland Medical Center. She's also the PGY2 Infectious Diseases Residency Program Director, and honestly, just an all-around incredible human, and you will hear why very shortly as she goes through some of these data. Now, I unfortunately got COVID-19 and was unable to present our session live, and so the amazing team at MAD-ID turned the stage into a home office for Emily, and we did our session over Zoom. For our loyal Breakpoints listeners who may not know, I actually have a golden retriever puppy named Nora, and she likes to join humans at all times, including Zoom calls. And she was even willing to make an appearance on this podcast episode. Because this was a live session, we do speak about slide content that was displaying for the audience in person. And so as you listen along, you can find the link to those slides. They're in a view-only free Google Drive, And you can find that link in the episode description notes. So whether you're on your phone or a desktop, you can click there and go to the slides. We also encourage you to check out the Breakpoints episodes number 28 and number 29, both of which were released in September 2020. That was the last time that our team gave you updates on non-COVID-19 related ID literature. So really nice compilations of some key publications. And with that, we will get started with this episode or the one that I affectionately refer to as the one where I actively had COVID-19 while presenting. So listeners, please say hello to Dr. Emily Heil, who will start us off.
1: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to my um, home office here. I've got my hot tea and honey in case of a coughing fit, a lot of water bottles. And uh, because Erin can't be here to support me, I've got Nora, um, her golden retriever puppy, hanging out here. (laughs) So um, Erin... I figured um, on this Saturday, Saturday morning, Saturday. you and I could do what we do best, which is just nerd out to some literature, but I invited um, probably about 100 or so of my closest friends to join us. So everyone say hi to Erin. She can only see you through this. So, morning, Erin. We hope you're well up in Tower
0: One. Good so morning, I- Emily. and Hi, everyone. And in this situation, the only thing I know how to say is hello and welcome to Breakpoints. We are really excited to run through some of the top studies and some of the top things that were presented at ECMID this year for all y'all.
1: All right, so let's get rolling. Erin's going to be driving our slides for us today, so you'll hear me say next slide occasionally, but this is focusing on non-COVID infectious diseases. So we're not talking about COVID today. Um, we're also not, yes, yes, no COVID. Woohoo. Um, we're also not going to be covering pediatric data or HIV. You've already heard a little bit about those from some other sessions. Um, We are going to pick up starting in May of 2021 when this last session that Aaron and uh, Ryan Shields did left off. So, with that, we are gonna roll straight into ECMID. So, ECMID this year took place in Lisbon, Portugal in April. Aaron and I were fortunate enough to attend, and this was my first ever ECMID, and I was super psyched about this Late Breaker session because I had heard about previous ECMIDs where like the Merino One study results were released and camera was released. And so I was expecting this big room full of thousands of people and like amazing research to be presented. Well, it was 8.30 on a Monday morning at the farthest room in the convention center it's one of the smaller rooms as well it had a very vague title to it nothing that would actually tell you this was the late breaker session where the cool stuff was being released and maybe about 20 people in the room so aaron and i we schlep ourselves over there and we're like are we in the right place Um, but turns out we were and there was some great literature presented at ecmid this year but i think all scientists have been relatively tied up with covid so i don't have anything like merino level to share with you But I think probably the biggest study to come out of ECMID this year was this Sabato trial. And so what Sabato was looking at, it was a randomized open-label trial of staph aureus bacteremia, and they referred to it as low-risk staph aureus bacteremia. So the equivalent of what we consider to be uncomplicated per our U.S. guidelines, the types of patients that we're treating for just 14 days for staph bacteremia, unicorns, right? Like the people that you don't actually see that often in real life. And so the way they defined this low-risk group was patients that had had negative uh, follow-up blood cultures within two to four days after their initial positive culture, no signs or symptoms of metastatic infection. These were patients that did not have prosthetic heart valves, prosthetic joints, no foreign bodies, no vascular grafts, and they were not severely immunosuppressed. If the source of infection was a central line, which was the most common source, it had to be removed within 14 days. This is a very, very specific population and I cannot emphasize enough how important that is in terms of considering how you're gonna apply these results to your patients. And so what they did was after five to seven days of IV therapy, they randomized you to either switch to an oral option, the most common of which was either Bactrim, uh, Bactrim was the most common, they also used Clinda or lid, or continue your IV therapy for a total course of somewhere between 12 to 16 days. And they followed patients for out to 90 days looking for staph aureus-related bacteremia complications as the primary outcome, and that was defined as either relapsing bacteremia, development of a metastatic site of infection, or attributable mortality. So what did they find? Um, In the South, I would say, bless their hearts, they screened over 5,000 patients to enroll 213, and then I think they cried uncle, because as a reminder, low-risk Staph aureus bacteremia is a unicorn. I practice in downtown Baltimore. I think in the 12 years I've been there, I've treated like two people with Staph aureus bacteremia for 14 days. You rarely find people that fit this very tight definition, but they found 213. And essentially what they found was that the early switch to oral therapy was not inferior to continuing patients with a full course of IVs and, as you would expect, is associated with a decrease in your hospital length of stay, which is great. Um, But overall, bad outcomes in this study were pretty rare, so only 4% of patients across both arms experienced the primary outcome at all, and only 10 patients died some applicability notes to how you're going to apply this in your own practice. So only 5% of patients in the study did have MRSA, so relatively low rates of MRSA. Again, very low low inoculum and manageable sources of infection. So the most common source of infection uh, was related to central venous catheters. And again, all of these had to be pulled within the first four days of therapy to even qualify for this study. Um, And in terms of the the oral therapy options they use, they use Bactrim at a dose of one double strength twice a day. That was the most common about three quarters of patients got Bactrim, uh, followed by clindamycin or linazolid. So I think this is certainly something that a lot of us may have already been doing in practice anyway, but it's nice to see uh, the data to back it up. But the main take home point is you just have to really diligently assess your patient populations for who's going to fit that very tight definition of low
0: risk. So, Aaron, what did you think about Sabato? Emily, I think you nailed it. I think the key point is they screened so many people to find those 200. And anecdotally, I would say all of us are probably doing this anyway. If you do find that unicorn patient you're like, it's fine, send them home on five more days of Linnaeus So I don't know out of everything you've learned throughout the amazingness of MAD-ID over the past few days, that this should be the thing you take home and implement in your stewardship program, because I just don't know that the bang is for the buck. But I do think it's good data nonetheless, continued support for oral therapy. And I do want to point out that Europeans are quite spelt compared to Americans because they use the double strength BID. And I think all of us would probably be giving more back for that for some of our patients. Um, But I think the mean weight in this study was like 60 kilos. So that's just something to keep in mind when you look at it too. The next major trial that was presented during the ECMID 2022 late breaker session was the ImpressU trial. This was a cluster randomized trial that evaluated this multifaceted stewardship intervention, and they were seeking to improve antibiotic prescribing for urinary tract infections in frail adults. Now, I was super excited when I saw this on the list of trials, because I had like vaguely heard of this trial, and they actually do have the study protocol published in BMJ Open. They published that in 2021, and so you can look this up. It's pretty comprehensive to see what they did, which I think is really neat. Um, But I don't know about you guys, but I say this every single day when doing prospective audit and feedback. You see those frail elderly patients often admitted from nursing homes. They come into the ED. They have altered mental status. They are totally fine. They are hemodynamically stable, but they can't communicate very well. That is their only symptom, if you even call it a symptom. And they get started on ceftriaxone. They're in the hospital for three days, and then they go home. And at least we've convinced them at this point that three days of ceftriaxone completes a course, but really it's just because by then, that's when we're saying they probably never needed antibiotics at all. And I say this to myself, or I say it to the pharmacists I work with at community hospitals, that I wish I could randomize them to a trial of antibiotics versus fluids and rest. I've actually pitched this, but no one in the United States will pay for it. And so I'm super glad they did this over in Europe. Um, But what they did is they included anyone 70 and older that was considered frail. So that would be a physical or a mental disability. And they randomized them to usual care, which usually involved getting some kind of antibiotic or going through this decision algorithm that they laid out for them and trying to guide people to better decision-making surrounding patient care. The primary outcome they looked at was number of antibiotic prescriptions for UTI per person year. And then I like that they also looked at balancing measures of harm. So what would be the risk of not treating someone that is actually infected? Those were all of their secondary measures and secondary aims. So this was the algorithm that they used. And thank you, Emily, for taking a much better slide photo during the session than I did, because mine was very, very blurry. Um, But basically, this is what they walk through. So they go, okay, I have a frail, 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 words, frail, elderly patient and no urinary hardware. So no catheter. That is an important caveat here. And they go, do they have classic urinary symptoms? But they took it one step further. So they had to have a fever, rigoring, suprapubic pain, or at least two symptoms in order to get antibiotics. So urinary frequency alone was not going to get you there. So this is a pretty aggressive algorithm. And then I like this part they had, if you had a quote, very bothersome symptom with no other cause, end quote, then you also could roll into antibiotics. I think that's a very cute way of saying that. So I like that. Um, But everything else in the world that we would consider, hematuria, prostate pain, you name it, they have this whole laundry list of other things that people often try to justify as a UTI. All of that leads you to this big do not give antibiotics pathway, evaluate other causes and just simply monitor this patient. So, they enrolled 1,041 patients. The mean age was 86 years. So, these are elderly patients. 78% of them came from a nursing home. And in the algorithm treated group, they had 58% less antibiotic prescriptions per person year than standard care. And this is neat this was more pronounced in patients with dementia, with a 67% reduction in that group. So, that's kind of your altered mental status alone. They looked at complications, mortality, hospitalizations. All those balancing measures we talked about, and there was no difference. In fact, it was numerically lower in the algorithm group. And so I think the take-home here is that this is a low-cost, pretty straightforward, safe, high-yield intervention, and I think this is a really nice roadmap for our stewardship teams to model or to tackle if you're looking to start that coming out of COVID, non-COVID-related 2022 stewardship initiative, I think this is a really nice one, and I think they have a lot of support for you to to implement this.
1: Oh, yeah. I can't imagine just like they're implementing their exact algorithm in combination with some of the stuff that Kim Clay has talked about yesterday in the diagnostic stewardship session. It's just stewardship gold right there. I
0: agree. I think it's a really nice take home. The next late breaker that they presented at ECMID 2022 was the attack trial. So, the attack trial evaluated sulbactam, dolorobactam versus colistin in patients with acinetobacter baumannii HAP, VAP, or bloodstream infection. Now, our dear friend Jason Pogue already gave away the punchline in his fabulous talk yesterday, but alas, I'm going to go through these data anyway because this is good stuff. So, attack was a global randomized active controlled phase three trial where patients either got Soloro Oh, solbactam, dolorobactam, sorry, which they call solder, which I'm going to say now for the sake of syllables, um, plus imipenem, or they were randomized to colistin plus imipenem for seven to 14 days. Now let's walk through those treatment group assignments and what they are. So solbactam is unique in that it is a beta-lactamase inhibitor, but it binds to acinetobacter, penicillin binding protein one and penicillin binding protein three. So it actually has antibacterial activity against acinetobacter. And we know the new IDSA guidelines recommend ambicillin solbactam as first line if it is susceptible. Dolorobactam is a novel beta-lactamase inhibitor that inhibits class A, class C, and class D beta-lactamases. So delorobactam, if you're really interested in this compound because it is kind of interesting, is formally known as ETX2514, so if you want to get like really nerdy dirty into the OG pubs about how they developed this, this would be, if it is approved, the first beta-lactamase inhibitor that inhibits the oxacarbapenemases found in acinetobacter, so this is very exciting. In this compound, its sole purpose in life is to protect the solbactam. So the solbactam can bind to those penicillin binding proteins. And so this is purely an acinetobacterium drug. It doesn't have any appreciable activity against other organisms. And so when looking at these regimens that they were randomized to, the imipenem was given empirically to cover everything else. And then notably as Jason pointed out yesterday, and as we know from the acetaminobacter literature, the colistin-carbapenem combinations have never really shown to be better than colistin alone, but that's why we have the imipenem factored in here. It also does enhance the potency of the compound, um, and I'll talk about that a little bit more on the next slide. So, Patients enrolled in this study had to have an APACHE-2 score of 10 to 30. If they had a score greater than 30, they were excluded. They had to have Acinetobacter in the blood or the sputum. They had to have no more than 48 hours of potentially effective therapy before the first dose of study drug, or they had to be clinically failing their prior regimen or demonstrate failure to improve at 48 hours before enrolling. And as it turns out, only three patients had a bloodstream infection. Everyone else had pneumonia. 70% of these patients were in the ICU, and they had a Charleston comorbidity mean score of 4.8. So these are patients with multiple comorbidities, these are sick people. Looking at that primary outcome of 28-day all-cause mortality, Solder was found non-inferior to calistin with 19% versus 32.3%. And I think we'd all say that's clinically superior, but I'm sorry, and this has to be said, I know, Emily, you and I have talked about this. This is crazy exciting, and it's like, wow, we ha- finally have a drug that might actually be effective for astometobacter treatment, which is so important for our patients. But it's hard not to look at other drugs and see what's going on here. So in the credible study, which, of course, evaluated Sifiteracol for the treatment of patients with carbapenem-resistant infections, end-of-study mortality in that group, that was about 150 patients, was 34% for Sifiteracol-treated patients and 18% in the best-available therapy arm, which was largely colistin-based. More specifically, when we looked at patients that had carbapenem-resistant Acinetobacter, end of study mortality was 50% in the sephitricol arm, which was crazy, and then 18% in best available therapy. And so we're looking at this 3418 and it's just flipped for credible, right? It was higher with sephitricol. Here, we're looking at a 1932 in favor of Solder. So I just think those mortality numbers are interesting. It is meaningful to point out how your control group does when you're evaluating these therapies. And I'm sure I'm gonna get like added by all the grim negative people in the room now, but I'd love to continue this discussion. Um, but just finishing up the attack trial and the results here. So what we have is non-inferiority and numerically higher clinical cure with solder compared to cholestane-based combinations, and then importantly superiority in terms of safety, way less nephrotoxicity. Um, they also did present a couple of posters, and this is to my earlier point, where they looked at solder in combination with imipenem and with meropenem in hollow fiber malos hollow fiber models. I can talk. Okay. Um, And they looked at those. And the carbapenem does potentiate some potency here. And it looks like miropenem is the same as imipenem, which I think is good because practically in the real world, I think we'd all be starting miropenem instead of imipenem. That seems to be a more regular formulary carbapenem. So it seems like that combo was probably reasonable as well. But of course, we'd need to watch that roll out in the real world so this get approved. The authors are looking at whole genome sequencing of the isolates, and so far they said that the data are encouraging that this seems to demonstrate efficacy geographically, globally, despite the sequence types of Acinetobacter. so that would be very good as well if this was kind of globally applicable, and so all in all, to summarize, we might finally have a drug that works for astinetobacter, and then to kind of round out some in the gram negative space that was presented at ECMID, the last thing we want to talk about is the phase one data that was presented for QPX772A or QPEX, which now has a name. It is called Xeroborbactam. And I did go straight to the source, um, to Dr. (laughs) Dudley, to decide how to pronounce this. And you can also go to their website and hear it. So that is how you pronounce this fatal lactamase inhibitor. Um, But this is a compound that was presented at ECMID by Dr. Jason Roberts, who is a pharmacist. He was presenting virtually from Australia while actively having COVID. So I have quite literally never related to a slide or a moment of a talk that I have given more since I am now in his exact shoes. Um, but Dr. Not Robert, and,
1: not nearly as cool.
0: <laughs> I know I'm on the 11th floor of the Hyatt in Orlando, but I wish I was in Australia. Um, But Dr. Mike Dudley, also a pharmacist, represented with this compound. So, really great pharmacist representation here, really cool drug. What this is is a new cyclic boronic acid beta lactamase inhibitor, and it inhibits all of the things, including it would be our first BLI to inhibit metallobeta lactamases, which is quite important. It is being developed currently or considered as a standalone beta lactamase inhibitor, which would mean we, in theory, as clinicians, could give it with any other parent beta lactam to restore activity, which I think there's a lot we're going to need to work out clinically there, but it's something that's potentially coming. It's something we should know about. And in the phase one data, it does look like it's safe. And then the neat thing is it has a long half-life. So that's good because it would facilitate use with different dosing strategies and multiple beta-lactams in order to optimize that beta-lactamase inhibitor exposure.
1: All right, so our next late-breaker study came to us from our friends up in Western Canada. And this was one of those studies that I think we all kind of know what the results are going to be, but it's really nice to have it in writing to take to like your C-suite if this is a problem that you face in your own institution. So they were looking at near patient versus reference lab testing of C. diff. So basically on-site C. diff testing versus having to send your specimens out to an outside lab. And this was a a cluster randomized crossover study across uh, 39 different hospitals. And so in the first arm, half the hospitals had their C. diff tests sent out while the other half had them done in-house. And then after about a year, they switched over. Um, And essentially, exactly as you would expect, if you have your C. diff testing in-house, you're going to have your patients on contact isolation for less time. They found about a nine hour decrease in the near testing um, sites. It was associated with a decreased length of stay um, in patients that were in the hospital for less than 48 hours, and also a decreased amount of antibiotic exposure. So for every one hour you delayed your test turnaround time, that was associated with increased antibiotic exposures. And because of all of those clinical implications, it actually ended up being cost effective despite the in-house testing being more expensive versus sending it out. So very common sense, very practical, but really nice to have the firm numbers, especially the cost part in hand, um, since we do often work in kind of financial silos in hospitals if you're trying to um, get this test in-house.
0: Yeah, I like like these data, Emily. I think they widely apply to all of us, especially our friends at community hospitals, which is most of us, right? We know in-house testing is better but it is more expensive. But if we can continue to show that it improves the overall cost of care and break down those silos, that's helpful. So I think these data are very, very cool and very, very relevant.
1: All right, so our next one came to us um, from Sarah, and I'm not sure if she's still here. The lights are kind of blinding, so I can't see exact faces in the audience, but I do want to give a shout out to Sarah because she woke up at 2 a.m. in the morning, um, chugged some coffee and presented to us in Lisbon at in the middle of the night, basically, in Detroit. Um, so congrats to her and Dr. Ryback for mentoring her and also for ID pharmacist getting a late breaker at ECMED. All of these things are super cool. Um, but this was their kind of post-marketing uh, registry trial of Omatocycline where they evaluated real-world experience of patients that have been on hematocycline for at least 72 hours for any indication. Most patients were getting this drug outpatient, and the vast majority were getting it for non-tuberculosis mycobacterial infections, which I think is really the niche that this drug has found for itself in the outpatient space. What they found that I thought was very interesting, but not entirely unexpected with tetracyclines in general, but specifically with amatocycline, which does not have a very easy administration schedule as it relates to food and timing, um, was that well over half of the patients in this study experienced some degree of GI toxicity. It only led to about 15% of the patients actually discontinuing the drug, but certainly going to be a practical limitation in the application of this drug for outpatient use. But nice to see some real world data um, of this kind of emerging
0: The next study that was done and presented at ECMID 2022 was done by our friends in the United Kingdom. So the United Kingdom has had a really strong emphasis on stewardship nationally, which is fantastic. But they actually found that despite that, the UK National Health Service found increasing antibiotic usage, even though they had this multifaceted approach to stewardship activities, and they had actually engaged financial incentives to try to reduce overuse. And so that was quite the bummer. And they were like, well, what do we do next? And so they kind of evaluated, why are we still seeing increased prescribing? And they thought that it was due to clinical urgency and diagnostic uncertainty paired at the time of empiric prescribing. And that they found that even though they had a prospective audit and feedback in place at most of their hospitals and these antibiotic timeouts, that providers simply weren't stopping antibiotics because of these uncertainties. And so they wanted to roll out this toolkit in order to help improve prescribing at this 72, 42 to 72 hour timeout window. And so they designed a step wedge cluster randomized clinical trial where they rolled out this toolkit. And this toolkit contained a decision aid, an online training, flyers for the patients to tell the patients why antibiotics were stopping, which I thought was really cool, and then audit and feedback continued to try, again, to try to increase the behavior of stopping at 48 to 72 hours, and I love this part. Their goal was to change the mentality from, I should continue antibiotics unless I can justify stopping, to, I should stop antibiotics unless I can justify continuing, and I think that's just a really important catchphrase. Um, And they looked at as their primary outcome, total antibiotic defined daily doses, which we would use days of therapy per thousand patient days in the United States, which would look a little different, but still they had a uniform metric of antibiotic consumption essentially. Um, And then they followed patients for up to two years pretty much after. And what they found um, was that the toolkit did statistically increase the amount of patients that stopped antibiotics by about 4% absolute difference. This did not occur right away, so they didn't see an immediate impact on antibiotic exposures, but they did see this sustained reduction in antibiotic use over time. Um, This toolkit is available online, which is neat. The website is antibioticreviewkit.org.uk if you wanna go and see these materials. And then now that they've essentially proven that this is effective, they are starting to integrate this into their electronic health record nationally and engage in forcing functions, which we know are most likely to improve prescribing. I do like that they kind of evaluated that this education and method worked before they went wholesale on digging it into their EHR, as we all know that's a much greater lift. Um, And so I thought the way they approached this systematically was quite nice. But fascinatingly, in looking at this graph here, when they first did the model to see if this toolkit had an impact, they actually found that the toolkit implementation was associated with increased mortality. And they were like, what? But then of course taking a step back they realized that that was almost exclusively due to the COVID-19 pandemic and so after statistical adjustment for the impact of the pandemic on mortality they found that there was no harm associated with the toolkit and that it did help stop antibiotics but looking at this graph 30-day mortality is on the y-axis here and just looking at that panel on the far right you can see just that huge spike during the pandemic and I'm showing this because I I know we all know this. I know we all lived through this horror and and we've seen these data in some way, shape or form, but this is the first time I've seen this in a non-COVID study, just as a hazard of trying to do stewardship and trying to evaluate any kind of impact of antibiotic use and then having these data be so striking. And this is something we're all going to have to keep in mind when we peer review studies, when we try to do studies, when we try to look at our own usage, just simply for our reporting and looking at the value of our stewardship programs The data from 2020 and 2020-21 are messed up, and we need to keep that in mind when we see these patient-specific outcomes and when we think about our denominator of patient days, because all of the healthy elective surgery patients weren't in the hospital, and so everything's going to be skewed to the bad for the COVID data, and I think that's just very important for infectious diseases and stewardship people to think about as we move forward.
1: All right, so rounding the bend of our last lay breaker for ECMID, this is the um, solid organ transplant arm of the increment study. So the increment study was originally published in 2017 in Lancet ID and looked at combination versus monotherapy for carbapenemase-producing enterobacteriales. So this was a follow-up study that took place in uh, 14 different centers across the world, uh, focusing on patients with solid organ transplants that had um, a uh, that had bacteremia caused by KPC or OXA48-producing club uh, seal pneumoniae. They were treated with either CASAVI or best available therapy, which, as you can imagine, most often was polymixin or colistin-based combination treatment. And they were looking at 14-day clinical success and also 30-day mortality, comparing the CAS-AVI versus best available therapy, and also developing an increment solid organ transplant score to assess mortality risk in this population. As you may recall from the first increment study, they also developed a really nice mortality score assessing risk for death from these organisms. And so in terms of what they found, I would say, again, nothing entirely surprising. I think we are all all pretty comfortable at this point that these new agents are fantastic and far better than best available therapy um, that we had before. So if you look at your targeted therapy cohort, so all groups together, for both uh, clinical success at 14 days on the top graph and um, 30-day mortality on the bottom graph, patients that got avicaz, um, cetazine, avibactam did far better than patients that got best available therapy. But what was interesting about this study, so on the uh, left side, your left side of the slide, is the original increment uh, mortality score and then the new one that they developed for patients with solid organ transplant. So when you categorize people into either low risk or high risk based on this increment score, the difference between the treatment arms actually went away. So the low-risk patients, what treatment they got didn't seem to matter as much, but in that high-risk group, our sickest patients, that is where having the Avicaz, these newer agents on board, was far superior to having best available therapy. So um, you know, when you're dealing with high-risk patients, that's when it's essential that we get these drugs on board quickly. As Jason mentioned yesterday, something we don't do well in stewardship necessarily is identifying these patients at high risk and getting the, the big guns out early, um, but that's the cohort where it makes a much bigger difference versus the low risk group. Um, But also a nice little uh, risk score that they've developed here that can help you categorize patients in your own practice. All right, Erin, I think it's time to say ciao to Lisbon and get into um, some of our randomized control trials that came out in the last year. So this one's my favorite. I love some therapeutic drug monitoring, and I was stupid excited for this study. I'm not going to say I was disappointed because I don't think this is the end yet, and I know I've got my UFers in the room that are still on board with me for beta-lactam TDM, so this is not over. Um, This was a target trial, and this took place at 13 hospitals in Germany, and the premise for this study was that We know that when patients have sepsis or septic shock, it really alters the PKPD of their antibiotics, including beta-lactams. If you remember the DALI study from a few years ago, you can see up to a 500-fold difference in beta-lactam concentrations across a population. We dose antibiotics as if renal function is the only thing that matters when there's so many other things at play. And this gets really mucked up when patients have severe sepsis or septic shock. So can we improve things by doing therapeutic drug monitoring and trying to be more precise with our dosing of beta-lactams? So again, they took uh, 13 hospitals in Germany. They enrolled adult patients with severe sepsis or septic shock. They were being treated with piperacillin and tazobactam, and it, they had to be enrolled and randomized within 24 hours of starting their antibiotics, which ended up um, kind of limiting how many patients they were able to enroll, unfortunately. But what they did was, if um, you can go back, Erin, uh, they randomized people to therapeutic drug monitoring or kind of standard of care. So everyone got 13.5 milligrams or 13.5 grams of Piptazo given as an, a continuous infusion after a 4.5 gram load. Love this, right? They took the the infusion out of the picture, the dosing out of the picture. They came out blazing with like the best dose of Piptazo you can give. So that argument is off the table now. Everyone got the best. Um, it was a dose adjusted to nine grams as a continuous infusion if you had renal dysfunction. From there, um, the experimental arm, they had daily piperacillin levels drawn, and they adjusted the patient's dosing, targeting a uh, piperacillin concentration of four times the MIC of the organism. If the patients didn't have positive cultures, they assumed an MIC of 16, which is the UCAS breakpoint for pseudomonas um, with piptazo, so sort of a worst-case scenario there. And in the control arm, they still got daily piperacillin concentrations, but they just didn't do anything with them. And they only um, dose adjusted based on renal function. All right. So they screened well over a thousand patients, but most patients had been on PIPTASER for more than 24 hours before they were able to get them enrolled into the study, unfortunately. And so they ended up with 125 in the TDM group and 124 in the non-TDM group. This was a sick cohort of patients. So, nearly three quarters of patients had septic shock. This was using the SEP2 definition. So, if you use the new SEP3 definition that includes lactate, that number goes down to closer to 50%. But still, well over half of the patients in this study had septic shock. So, a really sick cohort where we're really concerned about those PKPD changes because we know these people are getting totally tanked up with fluid. The most common infection source was pneumonia. Um, Interestingly, only about two thirds or closer to one-third of patients actually, uh, received combination therapy. I think in the U.S. I'm just used to like everyone gets vancomycin, but really their uh, rates of combination therapy were not as common in this study. And interestingly, the most common second agent was a quinolone and not vancomycin. So not quite translatable to how we see things in a U.S. ICU necessarily, um, and pretty high SOFA scores. This is a sick cohort. Unfortunately, though, across all study endpoints, there was really no difference between the therapeutic drug monitoring and the not therapeutic drug monitoring. So there was no difference in mortality, clinical cure, microbiologic cure, change in SOFA score, or ICU length of stay. And also, interestingly, there was no difference in PIPTAZO dose between the two groups. So, um, of the patients that had a positive culture in this study, Um, The most common organisms were gram negatives, most common, of course, being E. coli, and the Piptazo MIC for the gram negatives in this organism in more than 80% of the patients was less than or equal to four, and that's really important and that'll come up in a second, so kind of some puny bugs we're working with here. So about half of the patients in the TDM group ended up having some sort of dose adjustment based on their piperacillin levels. And so the graph that I'm showing you on the screen right now shows how often patients were within what they deemed to be a therapeutic range um, throughout the study period. Red being there below the therapeutic range, green being sweet spot, and then blue being above target. Um, And as you can see on the left side, those are the patients that received TDM. So they were much more frequently within that green, happy therapeutic window compared to the patients that did not get TDM, where it was all over the place. Arguably still a a degree of variability that's surprising potentially even for the ones that were getting TDM, but just about really enforces for you how dynamic PKPD is in this changing environment of a patient with septic shock, um, and also how wildly all over the place our beta-lactam concentrations can be. So, Does this mean we shouldn't continue to pursue therapeutic drug monitoring for uh, beta-lactams? I say absolutely not. I do think that this was a very well-done study. I love how they dosed Piptazo. I think they really took the infusion argument out of the equation. They came in with kind of our best, um, strongest uh, dose that we can do for Piptazo. I think it was a very real-world population like this, other than not many people getting Venk as well. This felt like the types of patients I see with sepsis in my ICUs. One thing that I really wish they had done was stratify the outcomes based on degree of AKI at time of presentation. We know that a lot of patients with septic shock do have renal dysfunction, but in almost half of those patients, it resolves within 48 hours. And so in that subset where maybe we've undershot because we're worried about their renal function at the time of presentation, would this TDM have been potentially helpful there? And then probably one of the most important things that I think was kind of the, the challenge this study faced was that these were really puny organisms, right? So the, most patients had a Piptazo MIC of less than or equal to four. So even if you're underdosed, you probably had enough piptazo running around that it wasn't a big deal. So my take homes from this are that the juice might not be worth the squeeze for all patients for sure, but I think this is still a very viable thing that we need to be pursuing for certain populations, especially patients with augmented renal clearance or patients that have AKI on arrival with quick turnaround or, and then bacterial infections with higher MICs and not some of these um, little bugs that they had in this, pop, in, in this part. But um, we've got two of our t- beta-lactam TDM experts in the audience. So maybe if we have time during Meet the Professors, we can get their, their thoughts on this study. So
0: yeah, Emily, I think we could talk about this all day. And of course, living in Pittsburgh, we see some non-puny bugs. And so I'm a big fan of this too in the right patients. But I do think it's important for these data to show us that maybe we don't need to do it for everyone. And there are human time and resources invested in this. And again, the lab costs we talked about, would these even be in-house labs and whatnot? And so I think it's like important to be cognizant of this when you're deciding who to do TDM in could also argue that Piptazo is not our drug of most concern, right? We'd probably all favor a cefepime trial here and looking at the toxicity aspects as well as the efficacy aspects, and that might be a more pharmacodynamically complex agent, and maybe we get more bang for our buck out of doing TDM with a drug like cefepime, which may be the workhorse in half our hospitals. And so I think this is still a lot on the table with beta-lactam TDM. And speaking of trials that leave a lot on the table, let's debate the Merino trials for forever. So we've heard a lot about Merino-1 and talking about the role of tazobactam with ESBLs. And I think Emily, you're gonna share a little bit more about uh, um, that with us today even. But the Merino-2 trial was published in August of 2021. This was a pilot randomized controlled trial that included 72 adults, and we'll come back to that. And they had bloodstream infections due to organisms that were presumed to have an inducible AMPC enzyme. So these were enterobacter species, Citrobacter friendii, Klebsiella orogenes, back when it was an enterobacter, the good old days, Morganella morganii, Providentia, and Serratia. And they had to screen 850 patients in order to find these 72. So this seems to be a common theme of these trials. They wanted to get to 100 patients and they simply couldn't do it. They were too slow to enroll. So we have 72 people here, which is not a lot. I think we can all agree. Most of the patients were excluded because they couldn't get susceptibilities on their isolates within 72 hours, which just like woof to that. And again, it just speaks to the importance of having accurate and timely diagnostics so we can improve the care of our patients. But that is a whole different story. Um, the primary outcome they looked at in Merino 2, where they took these C bugs, bloodstream infections, and randomized these patients to get Piptazo or meropenem. And they were looking at all-cause mortality at 30 days, ongoing fever or leukocytosis for five days, micro-failure within the first three to five days, and then micro-relapse, which was what they looked at from day five to day 30. So failure was early, relapse was later. And in this composite endpoint, 29% of patients treated with piperacillin tazobactam hit it versus 21% that were treated with meropenem. They said this was non-inferior or similar, I'm not really quite sure. Their conclusions are actually odd because the conclusions only speak to the micro pieces. And looking at the micro pieces, micro failures so that day three to five were 13% in piptazo treated patients versus zero in the miropenem. They attributed that to say that it's because the piptazo patients had their intravascular sources in for longer, like six days to line removal versus four days to line removal. Um, but they didn't formally analyze that. And then when they looked at relapses, so the days five to 30, those were zero in the Piptazo, but 9% in meropenem. And again, we're looking at 72 patients here. But I think all in all, it's important to know that these data were published and that these data are out there, but I'm really not sure they tell us much of anything at this point. And if anyone uses these data to tell us that you can treat enterobacter bacteremia with Piptazo, I will lose my mind. Um, so as we learned yesterday, and with the discussion of our new IDSA guidelines, this study was a really awesome effort, and this team, I want to underscore how amazing the Merino team is, one, to embark on these trials, and two, to take the constant critiques of these studies. Like, they are a phenomenal group that are just doing the hard work we need to do to answer important ID questions, but they recognize the limitations of this study. With what we know now and with what we've learned throughout this conference, that the different AMPCs have different rates of hydrolysis, different mutation frequencies, and they are not created equal. And the ones that are likely of most clinical concern are Enterobacter, Kleborogenes, and Citrobacter freundii specifically. And so I'm not even sure the Serratias, the Morganellas, and the Providentia should have been enrolled in this study. They didn't define or document source control. They didn't collect follow-up isolates on all patients, so we can't even truly assess the micro failures or the development of resistance. They didn't look at cefepime, which I think again we'd all consider standard care and is listed in the IDSA guidelines as a treatment of choice for these bugs. Um, dose optimized strategies weren't employed as you just discussed with how important dose optimization is in the target trial. And then it's unclear why so many patients failed regardless, but it was this big composite endpoint. But I do want to point out that when you look specifically at the patients with enterobacter in this study, again, very small numbers, but 28% failed with Piptazo versus 7% for meropenem, And so... Again, to summarize, I think it's important to know that Merino 2 was published within the last year or so, but I don't know that it tells us much um, at this point in time. And we do have a really nice summary and review, not to shamelessly self-plug here, um, but going through the IDSA guidelines and the treatment of AMPCs, ESBL, CRE, and other important drug resistant. Um, gram-negative infections. Episodes 51 and 52 of Breakpoints walk through these guidelines with authors Pernita Tama and Sam Aiken. And so these are really nice lessons since we don't have time to deep dive today um, to re-summarize um, the literature out there on these infections and to walk through some certain treatment algorithms.
1: All right, so I'm not going to spend too much time on this because Jason did a fabulous job with it yesterday, but I would encourage anyone that thinks this topic is interesting to pull the paper cited on this slide by Maggie Montague, it is a insights from SIDP about the role of tezo based combos for ESBLs and she goes deep, we go really deep onto the science of, of what we know and what we don't know about this question and uh, one thing that I will point out that this paper does include is the potential role of septolazane tazobactam because it's back, baby. So is that a role? Uh, is that a drug that we could be considering for ESBLs as well? Um, because the question continues to be in the post-Marino one world: Are we having to just go carbapenems all the way, or is there still potentially a role? for these drugs. Um, Tazobactam, as we know, has tenfold greater activity against CTXM, our most common ESBL in this country at this point in time, at least, compared to clavulanic acid. It should work. It works in a test tube a good bit of time. Can we use it clinically, though? Um, Some of the challenges with these that uh, Jason mentioned yesterday is, of course, they're only available as fixed-dose combinations. Um, Piptazo in an 8 to 1 ratio with piperacillin to tazobactam The time though, only in a two to one ratio, and that might be what is um, also helping it out here a little bit in terms of maybe potentially being a better treatment option. But why is this so hard? Why do we not have a clear answer to this? And because as was discussed yesterday, Tazobactam PKPD is kind of a black box at this point in terms of knowing exactly how it relates to efficacy, and there's a lot of unknown questions. Um, beta-lactamase inhibitor PKPD is extraordinarily complex, and that complexity is not reflected in our current breakpoints. So, for example, Piptazo, our breakpoint for Enterobacterialis, um, or sorry, for Pseudomonas is uh, 16 over 4. It is 16 over four because that 16 for piperacillin comes from PKPD data about what we know of how much piperacillin we need to hit that time above MIC target. And that makes sense. That's how we generate most of our breakpoints. The backslash four, comes from this assumption that four mics per mil, this standard concentration of tazobactam is going to be enough to then restore the activity against piperacillin in the setting of beta-lactamase inhibitor production, but we don't actually know that to be true. Um, And so you can't, the other challenge is that, of course, you cannot dose the inhibitor as an individual agent. Maybe Mike Dudley's group is going to change that, Uh, questions as to how this audience feels about whether or not that's a good idea or not, though. But then also your restorative capability of the beta-lactamase inhibitor to restore activity of the beta-lactam is highly dependent on that ratio of beta-lactamase inhibitor to beta-lactamase production. And that is dynamic. That is not something that is a static environment. And how we measure that, how we quantify that effect in that dynamic environment is not something I think anyone has quite figured out yet. So there's a lot of struggles in terms of trying to figure out the how we can optimize um, these beta-lactamase inhibitors, specifically tazobactam for ESBLs. Um, But what this article basically said was that based on our current PKPD data, it seems like ceftolazane tazobactam's breakpoint of 2-4 that CLSI has may be within reach. And ceftolazane tazobactam may be a reasonable treatment option for ESBLs. But with pip-tazo, as was discussed yesterday, um, it's really inadequate at the current breakpoint and really unlikely that we are going to be able to give enough drug um, to re- to achieve this in an esbl producing organism, and so we might be con- having concerns for clinical failure, even if the organism is considered susceptible. Um, so we've kind of put Piptazo to the side for more severe infections and are prioritizing carbapenems at this point in time, but I would say let's not take Toltaz out of the game quite yet. And again, kudos to our Merino friends who take the really important study topics and that are really challenging the study and go for them. Um, Merino 3 is actually randomizing uh, patients from uh, to septoltazobactam versus meropenem um, for ESBLs. And so that will hopefully get us an answer to this question. But it's a great paper. I would encourage everyone to pull that down. So next we're gonna talk about Stenotrophomonas, which is not a dinosaur. I always felt like steno sounded like a dinosaur. I consider steno to be more of a roach though. It is just the worst, right? It produces biofilms. It can like survive and thrive in nutrient poor environments. And you're like, how are you still alive? Um, It's intrinsically resistant to all sorts of antibiotics. It's a real pain in the tail. And there's not many drugs that treat it and there's not a lot of good data about which drug is the best. Historically, we have kind of set our sights on Bactrim as being our go-to drug for steno. It's certainly what I use and turn to in my practice, Um, but are there other options? So this was a study looking at Bactrim versus Levaquin. I would argue a tale of two evils here. I'm not sure that I'm fighting for either in this scenario, um, but they used the Cerner Health Facts database, which is a large uh, database um, from hospitals that use the Cerner electronic medical record over a 12 year period and evaluated patients that had SINO growing from a respiratory or blood culture that were treated with Bactrim or, or Levaquin only. So patients could not get combination therapy. They could not be on any other antibiotics that had intrinsic activity against stenotrophomonas. They could, however, have polymicrobial infections, and a good number of patients in this study did have um, polymicrobial infections. And their primary outcome was um, in-hospital mortality. So similar a theme that we're talking about today. They screened 15,000 patients to only include uh, 1,500 patients. That was due to a lot of patients getting combination therapy. Um, and the vast majority of these 1,500 patients had steno from a respiratory culture, which we know also makes it hard to evaluate treatment outcomes because steno is a frequent colonizer in the respiratory tract, and whether you're dying from it or with it can be very hard to suss out. Um, If you look across this forest plot here, you can see that across the board, really there was no difference between either. Um, But maybe surprisingly, everything did seem to favor uh, levofloxacin. Um, so they did a lot of statistical gymnastics in this study. They really tried to overcome all of the bias that can happen in a retrospective cohort study, um, and then ultimately found that there was no difference between levofloxacin or Bactrim, um, no statistically significant difference between the two, and offered that this might be an alternative agent. So I think it was a relatively well-done study from the STAT standpoint, but there were a lot of things that I think were missing from this study, which are just inherent challenges with these large database studies. So one- they didn't comment on dosing of either antibiotic at all. And I would say how we dose Bactrim for steno is still a really important question. If the esteemed Stan Akin was here, he would tell you that there was a little bit of hand-waving that went into the IDSA guideline recommendations for Bactrim dosing with steno because there's just not a lot of data into how to dose it. And so I would have really loved to seen some dosing information. They also didn't evaluate ADRs and you're talking about two of some of the nastiest antibiotics we have in terms of adverse drug effects so it would have been nice to see some sort of comparison of adverse drug effects between the two. Um, and there was also a substantial amount of polymicrobial infections and again respiratory infections, hard to know if it's the drug, the bug or underlying disease states. So with that, I think Erin, it's over to you, which is perfect timing, I need to cough. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and our good friend Sam <laughs> already went mini viral for this mad ID for his work with um, amp C's, and so I hope someone took some pic- takes a picture of the Steno talk and sends it to Sam. But uh, I think Steno is just something we have a long way to go in understanding if and how and when we really need to treat it. Um, but still, a good effort to look at that. And now we move into my favorite part of this talk, which we are calling random things that happened that are extremely cool. So I am not even going to attempt to pronounce the three generic names that make up this drug, so apologies in advance for using the trade or brand name, Um, but we are going to talk about a study that was recently published in CID February 2022 looking at outcomes in patients with cystic fibrosis after they initiated Trikafta. So this was a group out of Iowa, and this study is really, really nice. And basically, to get to the punchline, what they found is that in CF patients that initiated tricapta, they found a rapid reduction of infection-related visits and antibiotic use. And so this is really cool, because what they're looking at is a game-changing therapy. And I think in our life, we've been really fortunate that we've seen several of these. So ART for HIV, Hep C, the checkpoint inhibitors for oncology, and now things like Trikafta that just completely alter the disease course of these really morbid diseases. And it's just incredible science. So like just nerd out over that for a minute. Um, But cystic fibrosis, I know those of us are mostly familiar, but this is an autosomal recessive disease. It's caused by mutations in the gene for the CF transmembrane conductase regulatory or CFTR. And so new CF treatments like Trikafta are targeted to restore CFTR function. And so this happens, Trikafta is effective at more than 90% of patients with CF. And so this is hugely impactful. And what the authors did was they just pulled a massive amount of insurance claims data and they identified 389 patients who initiated this medication before December 1st, 2019. They picked this time cut off because of when the drug came to market and then they did not include COVID data. So I talked about the hazards of COVID data. So they cut off their evaluation at March, 2020. So everyone had 15 weeks pre and 15 weeks post. All of the patients served as their own case control. So pre post drug, and then they also looked at a set of patients that never got drug as another control and they did that solely to address seasonality of antibiotic prescriptions knowing that in certain times of the year you might be more likely to access care or get more antibiotics and so that's why they had the non treated control following medication initiation they found a significant decline in everything so overall healthcare visits days with a healthcare visit inpatient admissions days with an infection related visit days with an antibiotic fill, number of distinct antibiotics prescribed, and total days that antibiotics were supplied to a patient. They also saw a decrease in Pseudomonas aeruginosa infections and NTM infections, which is so crazy cool. And this drop-off in antibiotic usage and inpatient hospitalizations was pretty immediate after drug was initiated. They saw this within one week. And I will say anecdotally, we just do not see patients getting admitted with CF exacerbations anymore. It's really amazing what this drug has done. And so I think this is such a cool study in the infectious diseases space because there are 30,000 patients with CF in the United States. And so not only is this just amazing for them and their disease course and their quality of life, but this will hugely impact antibiotic use um, across the United States and, and beyond globally. And so this is just really neat data. But let's move into stewardship, and Emily, I'm going to kick it back to you. Dewey, all right. So,
1: antibiotic inertia. This is like this. This study, like, felt. I felt this in my soul. I think all the stew out there are going to really understand this concept of antibiotic inertia. So, this was a study looking at how antibiotics started in the emergency department are then continued on the inpatient side. So I think antibiotic inertia from the ED is probably one of the biggest ones we face. I would also argue that we should study antibiotic inertia on nights and weekends or attending handoff. That's my favorite one. Like, we want to be so collegial to our friends. Well, so-and-so wanted to continue antibiotics for seven days, so just one more day to, like, you know, get familiar with the service. But antibiotic inertia is the concept that basically... Once someone makes a decision, it's a lot harder to then change that decision, whether it be discontinue inappropriate therapy or deescalate excessively broad coverage, um, or just continue what was already started. And so what this study team did, you can go to the next slide, Aaron, um, was they created eight clinical scenarios on super common infections seen in the emergency department. And they gave these scenarios to emergency department providers and said, what antibiotics would you use in this situation? They then took those same scenarios and they assigned antibiotic treatment um, selections, whether it be something narrow or appropriate versus something excessively broad or potentially inappropriate. And they presented that to then a group of inpatient providers, both hospitalists and ICU providers and said, here's the scenario. This is what the emergency department did. What do you think? So they found that from the ED standpoint, um, if you go back, ED providers selected excessively broad or potentially inappropriate therapy in 40% of scenarios where there was something more narrow or optimal available. And then when those treatment selections were made, if you then hand that off to an inpatient provider, they are then more likely to continue that inappropriate therapy. So the, study, the take-home point of this study is that there's such a behavioral and cultural aspect of antibiotic prescribing and antibiotic inertia and getting people to change a decision that a colleague has previously made is probably one of the biggest targets that we have and biggest challenges that we have in stewardship. And they didn't have any groundbreaking ideas as to how we fix this problem, But I do think that it's an important thing to bring awareness to and certainly something that I think we all feel in our day-to-day practices. So another area of huge importance for stewardship intervention is going to be antibiotic utilization at the time of hospital discharge and transitions of care. And there was a wonderful workshop on this on Thursday that I unfortunately had to miss because I was still in clinic in Baltimore. But hopefully some of this is not new information to this audience if you were able to go. But we know that about 50% of patients that are in the hospital are going to get an antibiotic. And more than one in eight of those patients are going to have an antibiotic prescribed to them at discharge. These antibiotics are often prescribed for prolonged durations, more than they are needed, and fluoroquinolones, stewardship's arch nemesis, are the most common antibiotics utilized at discharge, so huge opportunity for stewardship intervention. So this was a review article from Valerie Vaughn, who uh, was at Michigan at the time. I think she's with the Utah Stewardship Powerhouse now, but it's a great framework for different targets of antibiotics at the transitions of care. So some target areas that she recommended that stewardship programs tackle, including making sure that the infectious diagnosis even still applies. So doing some sort of antibiotic timeout or review right before the patient goes home and make sure that we haven't unearthed some other alternate diagnosis, or maybe we're dealing with asymptomatic bacteria. Durations. We know durations is a huge potential intervention, especially with respiratory infections at the time of transitions of care. So are we planning to send the patient out on the appropriate duration of therapy? And have we picked the safest agent? Does it always have to be a quinolone or is there a better agent available? And can we improve our communication and handoff to the patient's outpatient provider? So lots of great things that would be super awesome to study. Erin, wouldn't it be super cool if there was a study that looked at all of this? It would be so cool, cool,
0: Emily. It would be so cool.
1: Wouldn't it be cool if like Susan Davis, and and I think Nick's already on a plane, so we can't applaud him, but shouldn't we maybe like give a round of applause to Susan Davis for this awesome study that I'm about to talk about? Because this, yeah. Susan's telling me to cut it out, but I will not, Susan. This is amazing work. So Susan Davis has done what all of us wish we could do, and put together a really impressive pharmacist-driven transitions of care model for antibiotic prescribing at discharge that is truly incredible. So hats off to her and her study team. This was an, extraordinarily, an extraordinary lift. So what they did, and hopefully you guys also already heard about this on Thursday, um, but this was a stepped wedge trial at five of the Henry Ford Medical Centers in Michigan. Um, where they leveraged clinical pharmacists to identify patients who are going home on oral antibiotics and engaged with the primary teams to make collaborative treatment plans. And so it's important to note that all of these hospitals did have stewardship pharmacists in place, who were collaborating with the unit-based and clinical pharmacists um, that were working directly with these care teams. Um, and so what they did was the pharmacist would create and communicate these collaborative plans on antibiotic selection with the primary care teams. And then this was one of my favorite parts of the study. I think this is really important to the success of the study. The pharmacist was then able to enter the prescription with the appropriate stop date into the electronic medical director uh, record so that the prescribing physician just had to sign it upon the patient being discharged. So the pharmacist really te- the patient up for the success to allow the prescriber to then hit it out of the park. And they looked at the frequency of optimal antibiotic prescription at discharge, and their definition of optimal antibiotics was weighed against their internal guidelines for antibiotic utilization, which is available in the supplemental materials of this paper, because like all good things, it's in the supplement, so make sure you check out the supplement. So as I said, this was a heavy lift. This was a huge intervention that they did. More than 1,500 interventions were documented in the medical record with 63% protocol adherence. They evaluated 400 patients in the pre- and post-arms, and they found just an incredible improvement in optimal antibiotic prescriptions at discharge. So 81.5% in the post-group compared to 36% in the pre-group. And where they saw the most bang for their buck was primarily with durations of therapy, specifically with pulmonary infections, making sure patients are only getting that three to five days of therapy for CAP and not anything beyond that. Um, Antibiotic selection in general, not using quinolones if there's a safer alternative available, and also just nixing the treatment of asymptomatic bacteria. So those were the three things that contributed most to their findings. They also, I know this had to have been the most painful data to collect ever, but I think another really important part of this study, they evaluated antibiotic-associated adverse drug events. And they found that this intervention was associated with fewer antibiotic-related adverse drug events, including new development of multidrug-resistant organisms and C. diff rates in their post-intervention period. So truly incredible work. My take home from this is that Pharmacist Rock, and they can have a huge role in improving antibiotic utilization at transitions of care. So kudos to Susan and her team. We need to all go pull this study. It's in JAMA Network Open. It's open access. Everyone can get it. Get that supplement. Get those guidelines. Make this happen at your home institution. It's incredible work.
0: It sure is. I immediately saw this and sent it to my C-suite and said, see, look at the impact pharmacists can have and look at how much more we can be doing at Transitions of Care. So to Nick and the whole team, I think this is really incredible work. And I would just like co-sign underscore, like highlight the fact that pharmacists pended the discharge meds to the provider, essentially just like cut out the need for the feedback and the back and forth and just enter it yourself. I think that's so empowering and so effective and efficient. And so I loved that. Another structural stewardship program publication that can justify services, I think, and really you know start to spin the wheels of creative ways that we can improve antibiotic-related care is out of um, the Intermountain Group out in Utah, which is becoming the stewardship mecca of the world, I think, um, out there. And uh, so Todd Vento and his group, Stephanie Sheely-May, just got married, John, the pharmacist out there, really fabulous team. And they published their initial experience with launching a telestewardship program across Intermountain Healthcare System. Now, they have 16 small community hospitals in Utah. That makes up a total of 688 beds. So I think that's important. Like These are very small hospitals, and that's why they don't necessarily have the ability to have a pharmacist on site or have different resources. Six of these hospitals were critical access hospitals that had less than 30 beds, and this region encompasses 430 miles. And so what they did is they established a program where they have centralized physician support and two pharmacists, and they provide stewardship services to these local hospitals, and they had this multifaceted approach where they offered all kinds of different things so first. They set up a hotline, which was a 24-hour ID consult line where people at these hospitals could call in and get advice. And that would either just be phone advice as a curbside, a chart review, like an asynchronous consult, or sometimes that led to a full ID consult, depending on the patient case. They had daily stewardship reviews through different alerting systems. They had a monthly webinar that the ID pharmacist led, and then other different interventions. And I think They were doing this before the pandemic and and intentionally established a telestewardship program. But I do think that because of the COVID-19 pandemic, some of us have done telestewardship in some way, shape or form. And I really do think this is going to be the future of how our systems practice medicine as we truly systemize healthcare and ensure that patients that are at rural or community hospitals, they deserve the right to the same specialty care that patients are getting at larger academic centers. And so I think these models are going to become more and more ingrained into how we provide care. And I think these are just really valuable things to think about how you can be efficient and effective. They did use a computer software to provide stewardship-based alerts, and they found that at the local pharmacist level, at the staff non-ID trained level, Only 15% of those alerts ended up being actionable, so there's a lot of noise. I think we all feel that with however we engage in our prospective audit and feedback, and ideally, this is, I think, to me, something we can say, yeah, this is a problem, and we need to start working on how we can make our stewardship teams most efficient so that ideally every patient we look at, we have some kind of recommendation, right, and we're weeding out those patients that don't need to be evaluated or have no actionable thing with their antibiotics that day. 35% 35% of the central team's alerts were actionable. So that was a little more efficient. Um, and overall, the other major thing that they did was every local hospital had some kind of stewardship project that was supported, mentored by the central team. So they did MUEs, they did allergy assessments. It was based on that hospital's need and all of their little mini projects were associated with less days of therapy or improved appropriateness of prescribing. So this was just a really nice program. It's a really nice template, again, to show where we can be creative in our stewardship resources. And then my good friend Christina Adrian also recently published a review in JACCP. I think this came out May 2021. That reviews telestewardship models and there's a beautiful figure in this paper that goes through the different kinds of possible models um, so this brings in influence from the University of Washington who has a really nice stewardship program um, and other health systems that have engaged on telestewardship type methods and we tried to break those down and show how you can do this and so this is a really nice publication to pull.
1: All right, so we're gonna close out our Stewie section by talking about MRSA surveillance cultures because stewardship programs love an MRSA surveillance culture, especially for pulmonary infections. More data coming out about maybe using it for some other infections, but pulmonary infections is where we know we have the best data for it. This is just an older uh, meta-analysis that looked at 22 different studies of the negative predictive value of um, MRSA surveillance cultures and MRSA pneumonia and found the negative predictive value against all types of pneumonia, was 96.5% in a pooled prevalence of 10% MRSA pneumonia. But one of the questions that hasn't been answered so far is how old can that culture be? Do you need to have it within 24 hours of when you're starting treatment? And so this was evaluated nicely in a study that was published in AJHP. You can go to the next slide, Erin in um, 2021. And this took place at three hospitals in a 21 site uh, 21 hospital community group. Um, And so they included 736 patients that had MRSA surveillance cultures done, and also a positive respiratory culture. And so within this cohort, about 15% of patients had MRSA pneumonia, and the MRSA PCR nasal screening had a negative predictive value of 94.9%, so pretty in line with what we've seen in other studies, really high negative predictive value when your prevalence of MRSA pneumonia is uh, relatively low. But what they did was they broke this down based on when that surveillance culture was done relative to when patients were started on antibiotics for that course of pneumonia. And that you can see within the um, different sampling groups within 24 hours, 24 to 48 hours, 48 hours to 7 days, 8 to 14 days, and then finally more than 14 days. Across all of those, your negative predictive value was relatively well-preserved, still ranging from somewhere between 93 percent to almost 99 percent. And so um, these were all done within the same index hospitalization, so that is one important thing. We do worry about MRSA acquisition um, from the hospital, and so it's important that you have an MRSA surveillance culture from within that patient's index hospitalization of concern. But from at least what this tells us is that it doesn't have to be right within 24 or 48 hours of when you're starting patients on antibiotics, even if it's a little on the older side, it's still probably relevant. I will make note that there were only 51 patients in the more than 14-day group, so we definitely saw a drop-off in terms of numbers. Most patients had theirs done within 24 to 48 hours, so it did skew a little bit that way, but in general, um, within same index hospitalization, MRSA surveillance cultures are good to go.
0: Love a good study that can help us reduce unnecessary testing. I also love funguses and viruses. So moving into my other favorite part of this session, all the new data coming out in the really the immunocompromised space. So first, there are two really fabulous antifungal review papers. We're not going to review them here, but we just want to point them out. One about the antifungal pipeline in drugs that was published in October 2020, and then another about antifungal susceptibility testing that was published in OFID in August of 2021. Uh, Fabulous reviews. You should read them. They're really, really great to wrap your head around a lot, what's happening in this space. The next major trial that came out was the phase three randomized double-blind non-inferiority trial of posaconazole versus voriconazole for the primary treatment of invasive aspergillosis. So this was published in Lancet in 2021. They enrolled 575 patients from 26 countries with proven, probable, or suspected um, invasive aspergillosis. What we need to know out of this study is that the primary outcome of all-cause mortality at 42 days was non-inferior for posa versus vori, 15% in posiconazole versus 21% for voriconazole. When you limited this to only patients with proven or probable disease, it was 19% in each arm. Treatment-related adverse events were greater in the voriconazole arm, 40% versus 30%, and these were largely driven by neurotoxicities, so hallucinations and things like that, which I think we've all seen in our patients on voriconazole. Interestingly, this was a blinded study. However, you could kind of tell who got vori because patients were allowed to get a day of therapy or so before they enrolled, and so they essentially would get VORIA standard care and then reload vori on day two for the study. And so patients got a little wonky in that first couple of days because they had a lot of voriconazole in their system. So it was blinded, but like maybe not really. Um, but the most common adverse event seen in the POSAconazole treated patients was hypokalemia, which now we know we've always been taught that, that POSA can cause hypokalemia. Now we know this is a pseudo hyperaldosteronism phenomenon seen when posaconazole levels are greater than three. Our good friend Matt Davis was one of the first to publish on that, and so I think that's really neat. They did not perform therapeutic drug monitoring in this study, which like hurts my heart, but I do think it enhances its external validity because unfortunately, a lot of our hospitals don't have ready access to azole TDM, and also both of these azole are drugs that benefit from TDM and have associated thresholds of efficacy and toxicity, and so it would have balanced out in both arms that you didn't have TDM. And so overall, what we need to know about this trial is it's a really nice RCT. There aren't many limitations and you should feel very safe and comfy using posaconazole for aspergillus, which is huge because it's safer, it's easier to dose, there's less drug interactions than VORI. I think any of us who have had patients on VORI for a long time know how hard it is to tolerate.
1: All right, so we have to at least very briefly mission ambition because this is the most important study for LMICs that I think has come out in a long time. So this took place across five African countries in patients that were HIV positive with cryptococcal meningitis, and they were randomized to a nice hearty 10 mg per kg dose of ambizome um, times just one, followed by 14 days of oral flu cytosine and high dose oral fluconazole versus the current WHO-recommended treatment regimen for cryptococcal meningitis and LMICs, which is um, traditional amphotericin uh, B plus flucytosine for seven days, followed by high-dose fluconazole. And their primary outcome was death at 10 weeks, and the single-dose ambisome followed by the oral treatment regimen was found to be non-inferior to the current guideline-recommended therapy, and at bonus was better tolerated because you got the seven days of old-school and old, am- old school ambisome or old-school amphotericin out of the picture. So I think this is going to be a guideline practice changing study um, for these countries. So that is awesome. Kudos to those investigators. All right, so another kind of womp womp study here. I had high hopes for this one. But if we've learned nothing over the last two years, viruses are hard to treat. Direct acting antivirals are challenging and it is hard to find good treatments for viruses. So this was the flagstone study The study question here was, does adding biloxivir, which is our CAP-dependent endonuclease inhibitor, so novel mechanism of action um, influenza medication, does adding it to a neuraminidase inhibitor improve treatment outcomes? Premise for this being, there was a mouse model published in 2018 that showed that um, giving both antivirals together decreased mouse mortality was highly synergistic because you're coming at the virus from two different mechanisms, so some, some theory that it may work in real life. So this was a randomized controlled trial of patients with severe flu that had a NEWS score of greater than or equal to four, and essentially what that translated to was that these patients were sick enough to be in the hospital, requiring O2, some of which were mechanically ventilated, not necessarily all ICU, so not a super sick cohort, but your flu is bad enough that you're in the hospital. And so they were randomized to get either an NAI by itself, most commonly oseltamivir, but they did include zanamivir and primavir in the study. And if you were in the biloxivir group, you got a dose of biloxivir on day one and day four. And if by day five, you were still not doing well, then they threw a third dose of biloxivir at you on day seven. And their primary outcome was the time to clinical improvement, which was defined as time to getting a new score of two or less, um, or whichever or uh, time to 20 or time to hospital discharge whichever came first. So as you can see here unfortunately on this Kaplan-Meier curve uh, for mortality with the combo versus the monotherapy It's not quite as purple of a line as some of the ACT-1 remdesivir uh, graphs were with that red and blue coming together, but um, not the results we were wanting to see. Stone-cold negative on every single primary and secondary outcome with one exception, which I'll get to in a second. But in essence, median time to clinical improvement was no difference between the groups, no difference in mortality, no difference in any of their secondary outcomes, including ICU length of stay, whether it's stratifications of whether or not you were in the ICU at baseline, you were ventilated at baseline, whether you had flu A, flu B, none of those subgroup analysis, they saw any difference either. But what they did see is that when you give the two drugs together, it the virus goes away faster in a test tube. And so why does that not matter clinically? Viruses are so hard. I still think we don't know the answer to that even with COVID necessarily. But the median time to cessation of viral shedding was much faster, almost uh, two days faster in the group that got combination therapy versus monotherapy with the, um, the NAIs. But unfortunately, no hard clinical outcomes here whether or not we should continue to study this combination. Potentially, I don't think that this was actually that sick of a group, uh, a study group in general. And so maybe zeroing in on your patients that require ECMO mechanical ventilation, um, this may translate to some sort of clinical improvement, especially if started really quickly within the time of diagnosis. But uh, for a larger population, this does not seem to be an answer.
0: Yeah, Emily, I don't think we're going to be putting this kaplan Meyer in the Louvre like we are the COVID vaccine kaplan Meyers, which luckily we do have a vaccine for influenza and that remains to be the best thing you can do for a virus is just prevent it. Um, Let's talk very briefly to wrap up this section about the new antifungals and then one new antiviral that I'm very, that I actually am very excited about. With the new antifungals, these were actually both presented at ECMID 2022. Um, they were oral abstracts, and they basically gave us updated data on ongoing trials that we've seen preliminary interim data before. So we're talking razofungin and abrexafungar. Razofungin is in a kind of candin, and it's nice because it can be administered weekly, so it has this really long half-life. What they showed was a, an updated meta-analysis from results from the STRIVE trial and the RESTORE trial, and essentially, just to get to the punchline, they demonstrated non-inferiority to Caspofungin in terms of cure, all-cause mortality, and safety. They did demonstrate a faster mycological eradication in blood cultures in patients that got loading doses. And so they just emphasized the importance of loading doses with the kinocandons, which I think is something that's known and in, in a lot of our dosing strategies. Um, But personally, I'm most excited about this drug, and I think Greg mentioned this as well, as a potential alternative for PJP-prophy in giving that once-weekly dosing, no drug interactions, no adverse events, The kind of are such friendly drugs. And so I'm really excited to see how that space evolves. Abrexafungarp is a novel oral glycan synthesis inhibitor. It recently got FDA approved um, at a dose of 300 milligrams twice a day for one day for vulvovaginal candidiasis. But what, this, what they presented at ECMID was the results of the FURY trial. So at this point, it's the fourth interim analysis, and they've enrolled 39 patients that have refractory or resistant um, invasive fungal disease, mostly candidiasis, some aspergillosis. And importantly, they're looking at a dose of 750 milligrams twice a day, followed by 750 milligrams daily, in this study, so y'all, if we cannot emphasize enough how much dosing matters for different kinds of infections and we can't necessarily take a labeled antibiotic for what it was studied at and translate that when we use it off-label for more serious and invasive infections. And so if I've ever seen a dosing difference, it's right here, so be very careful with that. Um, And so they presented these results. I mean, there's no comparator, but essentially it looks okay for candidiasis, and it looks not so great for pulmonary aspergillosis, but we will see how this evolves. And then finally, my favorite, I love CMV so much, and I'm so excited about this, is the solstice trial was finally published in CID in 2021, which is looking at morebivir, for refractory resistant CMV. This drug was recently FDA approved based on this study. And merebivir is a UL97 kinase inhibitor. And so it prevents CMV from replicating, but it treats Gancyclovir resistant isolates based on its different mechanism of action. And in this trial, they enrolled transplant patients, so stem cell or solid organ, who to receive two to one, either get merebivir or be enrolled in standard care, which is some. Trash combination of gancyclovir, high dose GAN, sidofovir, Foscarnate. our CMB drugs are pretty bad. And so this is pretty exciting. It was open label obviously because it's enrolled to standard care and the primary outcome was CMV clearance at eight weeks. So the authors published a beautiful infographic with this, and so if you want to pull the CID paper, you'll see the infographic that walks through the results. But what they found is that Morabavir did significantly improve CMV clearance at eight weeks compared to best available therapy, and there were much less adverse events, so there was less nephrotoxicity, less neutropenia. Mirabavir does cause a pretty significant taste disturbance though, and that's going to be something very important to counsel your patients on. This is actually why this drug coming to market was so delayed because when they studied it in phase one and phase two and the dose finding studies, it is a dose dependent taste disturbance. And so it was like just limiting for patients that couldn't <clears throat> tolerate it, but they landed on this 400 BID, which does still cause a pretty decent amount of it, but you'll just have to counsel patients on that. I think all patients would prefer that to being on foscarnet. This is an oral option for refractory resistant CMV. This is incredibly exciting for these very complex patients and these very complex infections. So this is good stuff. But Emily, I think I'm going to kick it back over to you to talk about some not so good stuff.
1: <laughs> All right. So this was a, this was my master's thesis that I defended from my kitchen table in November of 2020 while on home isolation with COVID, which is like the most 2020 thing that I think could have ever happened.
0: Um, I can, and so I can we, relate.
1: <laughs> yeah. We so we we had a, a diff problem at our institution. We had tried everything. We thought we had tried everything as it related to um, prevention of C. diff. And so our head of IP came to me and said, let's try probiotics. And I was like, no way. It's not going to work. Let's not do it. And she's like, no, we're going to do it. So we did it didn't work. Um, so we, we built a, a, a BPA into Epic uh, targeting higher risk patients. So this only flagged on patients who are greater than 50 years of age receiving a high risk antibiotic. We excluded all the safety things, which is one of the reasons I hate probiotics in patients. So if you had cancer, transplant, you were in an ICU, you might have the capsules manipulated and infect your central line. All that badness that can happen with probiotics, we at least excluded you from having the BPA firing. Aaron, you can go to the next slide. Um, and what we found was that in our unadjusted model, there was actually statistically higher rates of C. diff in the patients that got probiotics, and then I put my master's to good use, and I did all sorts of statistical gymnastics, and even in our adjusted model, uh, patients that got probiotics still did worse, not statistically worse at that point, uh, at least unfortunately, but still did worse, and so one strain of lactobacillus, even three strains of lactobacillus is not necessarily going to tip our microbiome um, in these complex disease states, but that is cool that there's so much more research going on in terms of microbiome. So Erin, what else have we had since then?
0: Yes, and to put the nail in the coffin on probiotics, there's a really nice study done in JAMA. Jenny Johnstone and colleagues published the PROSPECT trial. They looked at using lactobacillus, the same um, compound you were using, M, and they wanted to see if that prevented VAP in the ICU. And I'll just save us the time and energy. They looked at 20 different endpoints. They found stone cold, absolutely nothing with probiotics, except the patients that got probiotics had significantly more lactobacillus cultured from sterile sites so stop giving probiotics they do nothing to help and they arguably hurt your patients and they're just a waste of time money and resources and so this I think and the prospect trial is really well done if you want to just read like a really nice RCT their tables are beautiful really nice stuff Other very nice neat things are moving away from the antibiotic space and into non-traditional therapies, including an emphasis on microbiome therapies for recurrent C. diff. I think this space is very cool. We're going to talk through the series data with compound SER109, but Faring is also developing a product in this space. Um, So, SER109, is basically this hodgepodge of spore forming units that were donor derived and purified. They give this compound orally. So it's like a super probiotic ish, if you want to try to relate that to your patients, but it really is trying to restore and cure the microbiome, which is just really cool to start thinking about. This trial looked at patients that had three or more episodes of C. diff, so they would have had to be on their second recurrence, and basically they finished their course of treatment, so whatever antibiotics they were getting for C. diff, and then they were randomized to subsequently take either the SCR product or placebo, and they took four capsules once a day for three days, so this isn't a very long course of therapy, and it's oral, And what they found is a relative risk reduction in recurrences of 68% with a number needed to treat of 3.6. That is really compelling. That is very cool. And I'd be interested to see where this goes as an FMT alternative or even replacement. Um, And I think we all, if you've had a patient with recurrent C. diff, you know how morbid and horrible it is. And so these microbiome-based therapies are really good for our patients and really neat if they pan out.
1: That is how a study of 140 people gets into the New England Journal of Medicine. Truly incredible. Super excited to see the future of that. All right. Can we really be at Mad ID and not talk about vancomycin? I just heard a groan from half of the room and laugh from other half of the room. Is this worse
0: than talking about COVID? I'm not sure. I don't know. We got
1: to talk about vancomycin very briefly, though. You have a few minutes. Go. New guidelines are out. Bayesian dosing is preferred, but you can also use first order PK equations to get to your AUC. But how do the methods actually compare? So This is a nice study by Katie Olney and colleagues out of uh, University of Kentucky where they've been doing uh, two-level guided vancomycin AUC dosing for quite a while. They looked at 978 patients that were on VANC for at least 72 hours who had two levels drawn, a midpoint and a trough to do AUC calculations. So they used good old-fashioned math. In the first arm, they plugged both calculations into inside Rx in the second arm, and then in the third arm, they took the trough level, can you go back, Aaron, um, and plugged it into the uh, inside Rx as well, so Bayesian just using one concentration. They looked at just general correlation, but then also clinical agreement, meaning how often would it tell you to, that the patient was either subtherapeutic, meaning an AUC less than 400, therapeutic 400 to 600, or super therapeutic AUC greater than 600, because that's when we worry about would we actually make dosing changes off of these. And so they found great agreement between First order PK and the two level Bayesian, and then also great agreement within the two Bayesians. But on the next slide, which is arguably what is most important and what we all wanna know, because how many of you are trying to implement Bayesian at your institution right now, and you're going to your C-suite and you're like, if you give me Bayesian software, I'm only gonna get one bank level. I'm gonna save you money on labs, please pay for this software for me. So, well, how well does doing the two levels in math compare to one level in Bayesian? Unfortunately, we saw more of a moderate agreement at this point, and our clinical agreement went down to 78.6%. And where they actually saw the biggest kind of discrepancies was when the AUC was super therapeutic. And that can potentially be dangerous, because you might have one method telling you you are in range, or even sub-therapeutic, and then you're going to make a dose adjustment, while the other method is saying you're While well, the truth is that you're actually super therapeutic. Um, so we can maybe talk about this a little bit more at Meet the Professors. when We've got many Vank experts sitting up here with me. But um, Something to keep in mind if you are making that. Well, I'm just going to get one level argument and trying to implement Bayesian. Two levels is best if you can do them. All right, so now we're going to get into our rapid fire section of things we just couldn't leave out, but we're not going to be able to say too much on. All right, so the first one I think is another kind of common sense thing we've all been doing, but it's super nice to have literature to back it up. So when we have patients with gram-negative bacteremia or any bacteremia, sepsis, uh, we know time is money as it relates to antibiotics. And so giving your beta-lactam first, if you're giving someone vancomycin, just makes sense, right? Your odds of covering more pathogens is higher because is really just there for MRSA, but your Piptase or your cefepime is covering a whole host of pathogens. Gram-negative bloodstream infections are associated with high and early mortality, and your beta-lactam antibiotics can go in quick. Even if you're using a continuous infusion or an extended infusion, you're still giving that initial dose as a 30-minute bolus, or maybe even less if your drugs are on shortage and you've switched to IV push. So does it actually make a difference in real life to give the beta-lactam prior to vancomycin? So this was a retrospective observational study um, by uh, Pernita Tama and colleagues out of Johns Hopkins, and the primary exposure was patients that got the beta-lactam administered before the vancomycin. There were about 4,000 patients in this study. The most common bacteria were Staph aureus, E. coli, and Club pneumo, but the most deadly bacteria were Acinetobacter, Pseudomonas, and then Group A strep. And what they found was both in their unadjusted and adjusted analyses, the odds of mortality within seven days was higher if you got your vancomycin before your beta-lactam. And interestingly, about 500 patients in this study did have MRSA bacteremia. And so when you pull out that cohort, even within that group, giving the beta-lactam before the vancomycin, it was no longer statistically better to give the beta-lactam first, but it was no worse. So by giving the beta-lactam first, you're not doing any harm to the people that end up having MRSA where that drug wasn't doing much of anything, but you're taking care of the majority of people and saving lives. And so this is something that I think most ED nurses know this, but we struggle on like the floors where maybe People aren't as used to dealing with sepsis and making sure we
0: get the right antibiotic first. Definitely something to educate on the other thing to shout from the rooftops is that the American Heart Association updated their guidelines for dental procedures. And officially now in highlight under the nice little table says clindamycin is no longer recommended for antibiotic prophylaxis or a dental procedure so we are just systematically removing clindamycin from every treatment guideline because really, when do you need to use it anymore. Uh, So this is good stuff may 2021 scientific statement.
1: All right. Yay for ophthalmology. Yay for me getting to put Glauco in a slide. I was super excited about this screenshot. So I guess list under things we do for no reasons, but also things that I feel like as ID people, we really like to recommend because it makes us feel cool. Like someone's got candidemia. Oh, did you recommend an optoconsult? Well, that's no longer recommended by the American Academy of Ophthalmology. So as we know, if you have candidemia, you can have ocular involvement, but it happens in less than 1% of patients. And interestingly, modifying your treatment regimens by adding on an azole or something to target the eyes since our kind of candids don't do well in the eyes, has not actually been shown to improve treatment outcomes, and so this is considered a low-value practice by the American Academy of Ophthalmology, and so we should be no longer recommending pan opto consults across the board in our patients with candidemia and only consult opto when they actually have signs and symptoms of an ocular infection.
0: I will say I don't know if all of our ID colleagues are on board with that yet, so definitely discuss at your institution as you roll that out, but note that ophthalmology is saying that the last thing we wanna make sure you guys are aware of is there's a new review in the New England Journal of Medicine by Gadi Hadar and Nina Singh called Fever of Unknown Origin. This comes up all the time. There was an old review on it. They updated it. I personally know these authors, they're phenomenal physicians and they put their life's blood into this paper and it's really nice. So we're just letting you know that this came out this year. And then last but certainly not least, the trial in JAMA of seven versus 14 days of antibiotic therapy for men with urinary tract infections. Punchline is seven days is fine. There are more detail that we won't get into right now, but this trial is out there. You should use it to say seven days for men, which we know are complicated, but seven days is fine. And thank you so much for letting us run through this recap and bearing with me as I you know, battle COVID up here in this hotel room. And Emily, thanks for being the most amazing co-presenter always. And with that, thank you for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. I have been your host, Erin McCreary, and I have spoken today with my good friend, Dr. Emily Heil, coming at you live from the Making a Difference in Infectious Diseases Conference. Breakpoints was created by Julianne Justo, Erin McCreary, and Jason Polk. This episode was produced by Doctors Rachel Britt and Jillian Hayes. The executive producer of Breakpoints is me, Erin McCreary. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke and you can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and the future.